0: These are the oldest stories. Online at oldeststories.net. The Akkadian Empires had a good run, about 150 years from Sargon's great battle against Lugal Zagezi to the end of the last competent king's reign. But with this episode, we will wrap up this great legend with the precipitous decline, watching it collapse hard, almost as quickly as it rose initially, then slowly fade into nothingness until the city itself is destroyed so utterly that modern archaeologists are still unable to determine where it was once located. I should also note right up front that we're entering something of a dark age. Perhaps we've been spoiled, all things considered, with the tremendously unusual amount of written records we have for the Akkadian era, and the ages immediately preceding it, and now we're reverting to what the rest of the world faces, a time when we can run through a hundred years with barely enough detail to fill a thirty-minute episode. But let us look at the last fading light of the Akkadian Empire. It's the year 2217 BCE, approximately, and the empire is rock solid. The self-proclaimed god-king has ascended from his mortal throne to his heavenly one, and power has passed peacefully to his son, shar Kalishari. Now, this peaceful transfer of power is as much of a testament to the stability of the empire as anything, since Naram-Sin had at least ten children. However, it was made clear early on that Sharkhali Shara was crown prince, and Naram-Sin seems to have been able to make that stick, partly by being generous in handing out governorships and temple administrations to all of them equally. Kalishari's reign begins auspiciously enough, with a campaign through Sumer, but not the sort of campaign we've come to expect. It seems he paraded from town to town and held lavish feasts at each stop, which is probably the best start to any reign that we've seen yet in Sumer or Akkad. Probably right at the beginning, he is claiming the divinity controversially inherited from his father. The next year he goes into the mountains, likely to fight some nomadic peoples who were raiding into the empire again. A pretty standard sort of engagement, and the king's forces returned home to a small triumph. For the next few years Shar Kalishari focuses on building the Temple of Enlil, the Ekkur in Nippur, likely completing his father's renovations that would soon be so grossly maligned in the curse of Agada. There are more barbarian incursions and more reprisals by the king, and soon enough, people start to notice that these barbarians are starting to come more often than they used to. Not in one big wave, mind you, and not in such numbers that the Acadian army is having any trouble repulsing them at this point, but they have grown to be enough of a nuisance that the king finds it impossible to spare anything to go on campaigns of his own to expand the empire's borders. My own impression, from the scant evidence that we have, is that Kalishari was a bit more content of a personality than his father was. He seems less driven to go out and conquer for its own sake. But he was still of the Sargonic dynasty, and had the opportunity arisen, he would have at least tried to take something. But as the Temple of Enlil is being completed... He takes credit for capturing the Gutian king, a fine military accomplishment, but this changes little strategically, since the Gutian nomads of the mountains are far from united. A man claiming to be king likely rules over nothing more than a handful of scattered tribes. The next few years sees the king on the opposite side of the empire— pushing even into the desert to disperse the Amorite pressure on the towns of the Euphrates River. The Elamites start to feel this pressure as well, and decide that the solution is a raid into Akkadian territory, while Kalishari is engaged. But the king switches gears with practiced competence, and brings the Elamites to battle, and then to a rout. We have record of another year after that when the Gutians attack, but many year names are missing from his 24 year reign, likely more years in which attacks by barbarian peoples steadily increased in frequency and desperation. There may have also been a few abortive rebellions, based in part on the increased tax burden that was squeezing from both ends. The tax being higher to pay for the military, and the people being less able to pay for it, thanks to the slow climate change descending upon the region. And that was the real killer. It turns out that the doom of the Akkadian Empire and much of Mesopotamian civilization is due ultimately to climate change. No, it wasn't a product of the rampant growth in industrialization that caused the climate change this time, though scientists disagree about the exact cause here. In older works, scholars propose that some meteor or volcano was the cause, though that seems less likely nowadays as evidence of such a massive catastrophe is largely missing. Now, they tend to just leave the cause as uncertain. Apparently, climate is a tremendously chaotic system, and sometimes you get decades-long shifts for no particular reason. And 4,000-year-old climate is an even more obscure system thanks to poor records. This particular climate anomaly goes by the catchy name of the 4.2-kilo-year BP aridification event. The people affected by it had no idea that there was something systemic going on, so they just called it drought, or the anger of the gods. It's dated pretty much right on the year 2200, with after effects continuing to echo around the planet for the rest of the century, and it comes to effect far more than just Mesopotamia. The climate shift of 2200 causes the level in the Nile River to fall by half for decades, ending the Egyptian Old Kingdom, the one that built the Great Pyramids and had lasted for 500 years until then. Over in India, there is similar evidence of a drying out, and additionally, the effects of the drought in Central Asia drove countless nomads south, leading ultimately to the complete destruction of the Indus Valley civilization that had been the long-distance trading partner of the Sumerians and Akkadians. All that missing water appears to have gone to China, where the legend of Yu the Great occurred around this time. His story is that there came a time when the floods of the Yellow River became so uncontrollable that everything but the tallest mountains was submerged. Yu's father Gun was hired by the king to control the floods, and so a massive program of dike and dam construction was undertaken. But after nine years, there was another great flood that washed it all away. You, along with the mythical Minister of Agriculture, and don't you love that in the year 2400 BCE, the Chinese already have a mythical Minister of Agriculture? Anyway, along with the mythical Minister of Agriculture, Ho Ji, the two of them invented new flood control methods to complement direct river control, like digging diversionary irrigation ditches and dredging the riverbeds to disperse and control the flooding, rather than attempt to control it directly. He's so popular that after finally inventing the solution to flooding, that the mythic king Shun hands over the throne of China to Yu instead of his own son, and Yu goes on to become the, one of the great legendary figures of preliterate China. And actually, Legends of China up to the Qin Emperor would be a fun chapter for this show, but I have a long, long way to go until we're even out of Mesopotamia. And so returning to Mesopotamia, we find that the climatic shift has had the direct impact of reducing the amount of rainfall over the Anatolian and Armenian mountains by maybe 50%, with a corresponding dramatic and persistent drop in the water levels of the Tigris and Euphrates River. In the north, the rain-fed agriculture was starved of rain and harvests withered for a generation. In the south, It was even worse, since being completely reliant on irrigation canals in ditches, the area was reduced to desert. Worse yet, when an irrigation-based agriculture system like the one in Sumer receives little to no water, the infrastructure of canals and ditches starts to collapse and silt up very quickly, making it less effective when they would occasionally get a bit of water, and the whole area has a tendency to salinate over time, poisoning the earth. All these problems were known about and managed to a certain degree in normal times, but even had the times remained normal, this was likely more infrastructure degradation than the Cadian Empire at its height was ready to deal with. Perhaps most surprisingly, many scholars attribute a portion of the hardship to the collapse of trade, particularly international trade. After all, with every regional culture facing the same environmental hardship, all of them had less to sell and less with which to buy. Additionally, lowered water levels would make the rivers, which were the main arteries of Mesopotamian trade, less navigable, damaging internal trade as well. In my own head... I usually think of Bronze Age trade as fairly low volume, and mostly for the elites of society. But it turns out that quite a lot of the Akkadian economy was plugged in, directly or indirectly, to trade. And remember that the entire sophisticated metallurgy industry was based on imported goods, as there is zero copper in Mesopotamia itself, and many religious rituals have come to depend on imported things like cedar incense, luxury goods from exotic foreign countries. And of course, the drought did not just affect civilized people. It disrupted the nomads of Asia as well, in ways that wouldn't fully settle out for 300 years, and likely being a driver of expansion by the Indo-Europeans at around the same time, as well as the chaos that will see the Hittites migrate into the Middle East and the Proto-Greeks into modern Turkey and Greece we're going to see wave after wave of Gutian and Amorite crash against the empire, and that likely includes many smaller tribal identities that simply get lumped in with the catch-all label Gutian. The Sumerians, after all, barely considered them human, so why bother learning all their tribal differentiations? All this means that the latter half of Sharkalashari's reign is in full-on crisis mode, He takes the throne in 2217 and will reign until 2193, witnessing the full build-up of the disastrous weather event. Seeing the extremity of the famine, he orders certain towns in marginal regions to be abandoned and their populations resettled closer to the rivers, but still people go hungry in never-before-seen numbers. With the barbarians starting to infiltrate the heartland of the empire, acting as roving bandit bands, trade, movement, and long-distance communication starts to get disrupted, and many fringe parts of the empire are left on their own, whether they're seeking that autonomy or not. With his death, it's unclear exactly how much of the Akkadian Empire remains in effective control. Some think that Kalishari kept it more or less intact, at least nominally, with many fringe places beginning to covertly exercise independence, while there are certain extremists who believe that the empire has basically fallen at this point. But given the extent of his campaigns and his constant battling throughout the empire, I think it most likely that Sharkalishari was a good man in a bad situation and was able to more or less keep the empire together. But in 2193, BCE. After twenty four years of barely holding it together, Shah Kalishari dies, possibly from an acute case of palace murder. And with this, it all falls apart. Cities begin defecting left and right, whole regions taking back their independence with zero opposition, except maybe from their neighbors and the barbarian hordes that now have no massive centralized army, keeping them at bay as they pour in in greater numbers every year. Within the Akkadian region, since that's all that's left to be governed from the capital, a four-way civil war erupts. The Sumerian king's list throws up its hands at this point, and instead of listing everyone, simply says after Sharkhalishari, then who was king? Who was not king? Emphasizing that pretty much everyone was declaring their kingship in the wake of this explosion. Of the Akkadian Civil War, which lasted three years, we know basically nothing. It appears to have been confined solely to the central Akkadian region since the empire fell away fast. Four kings emerged as temporary winners in these days, Ergigi, Imi, Nanum, and Ilulu, two of whom we have nothing but names for. For Ergigi, we have a fun little letter which he wrote to the now-independent city of Lagash, insisting that, as Akkadian king, he retains jurisdiction over capital crimes, a complaint that appears to have been ignored. As for Ilulu, there is the tentative suggestion that he wasn't Akkadian at all, but rather a Gudian adventurer, sticking his nose and army into civilized politics. None of these men accomplish anything great. Rising out of this anarchy is King Dudu. Yes, that is really his name, D-U-D-U, Dudu. It tells you how bad things have gotten when King Poop is the height of competence for your city. He's said to have ruled for 21 years, but there are skeptical voices who think that there were more minor kings, or possibly civil wars in there somewhere, that were largely forgotten to history, and all these years get attributed instead to one man who happened by a slight margin to be the most notable out of this host of forgettable and forgotten historic figures. Additionally, while he and his son claim to be descendants from Sargon, there's no surviving evidence of this, and many historians place the end of the Sargonic dynasty, and in fact the empire itself, with Shar Kalashari in 2193. Still, with King Dudu, the Akkadian records, while still very sparse and fragmentary for this period, get a little clearer. He was a real person, and he did rule at least for a while. He ruled over nothing but a rump state, though. The four years of civil war saw the empire collapse utterly. And now the city of Akkad ruled over nothing but the city itself, and anywhere in easy walking distance that didn't have its own army by now. Honestly, the story of the empire is pretty much over by now. Dudu launches a few campaigns. We know of ones against Lagash, Umma, and against some Elamites, but we can't even say who won these encounters, except that no great change in either direction occurred. Dudu was succeeded in 2169 by his son Shaturl, who was slightly more successful, bringing the nearby cities of Kish, Tutub, and Eshnunna back into Akkadian control. If indeed they ever actually left it, they may have been periphery cities for the entire period. It's really hard to say one way or the other. He even named the nearby Diala River after himself, for whatever reason, though this didn't stick. It isn't really clear if Shatural accomplished anything, and after 15 years, the Gutians, who had overrun Mesopotamia, finally laid siege and conquered the city of Akkad, killing the last nominal member of the Sargonic dynasty and formally bringing an end to the empire. The city of Akkad would, in much diminished form, continue to be ruled by random forgotten Gutian kings for about 50 more years until the city itself would be burned to the ground by a Gutian with a grudge, and the area abandoned, possibly forever if you don't credit the later Babylonian expedition with finding the right ruins. And this is the end of the world's first great empire, brought low by climate change, nomadic invasion, and civil War. The Akkadian Empire wove the fabric of a singular Mesopotamian culture, and while it wouldn't be surpassed until the Neo-Assyrian Empire in the Iron Age, many of the cultural practices that the Akkadians had borrowed from the Sumerians and improved upon would henceforth be common groundwork for the aspiring civilizations of the Near East, and for many ancients, for thousands of years, history would literally begin for them, With Sargon. But of course, the end of the Akkadian Empire is hardly the end of history. We've transitioned here from the early Bronze Age to the middle Bronze Age, but I have every intention of taking this show all the way to the Bronze Age collapse a good thousand years in the future. We still have the Babylonians, Assyrians, Hittites, and Canaanites to go, and when we look at the wreckage of the empire more directly, we can see, knowing history as we do, that dim flickers are keeping civilization alive in Uruk, Ur, Lagash, and Larsa. Of course, we pick out those cities because we know who comes to be important later on, but right around 2150, they likely didn't look much different from the other cities that hadn't been completely abandoned. They were hungry, frightened, and constantly under siege by neighbors and barbarians. And when the Sumerians look out over their walls, they see a second flood inundating the entire world. Not a literal flood, of course, this was still a century of hard drought. No, they saw a flood of barbarians carpeting the land. We will have the Neo-Sumerian Renaissance soon enough, but for now, the next hundred years is the age of the Gutians. At first, I wondered if I could do it, if I could condense an entire century of Gutian domination into a single episode with maybe another episode devoted to their culture and stories. But it turns out that there isn't enough detail about the Gutians to compellingly fill half an episode. We're absolutely looking at a dark age when almost nothing was written down. What can we say about the Gutians for sure, then? We know, first of all, that they were illiterate, and remained that way even after coming into power in various cities. Their origins, material culture, and language are entirely obscure to us now, and pretty much everything we know of them comes in the form of other people writing about them, usually derogatorily. Prior to the current period, they literally only show up in inscriptions of the form King Such-and-Such Defeated the Gutians, taking credit for the destruction of the entire people as if they were a single unified group. This is a distortion for propaganda purposes, likely one fairly well understood even by the people reading the propaganda. The Gutians at no point are a unified group not a kingdom or even a coalition of states. They are the nomads of the Zagros Mountains. Most of them share a common language, as well as a god named Guti among their pantheon, but even there, it is likely that there are plenty of speakers of other languages and followers of other gods among this barbarous amalgam. For sure, though, in this era of happy syncretism, Gutians appear to have disrespected the civilized gods, and the civilized people had no use in turn for the Gutian gods. They lived as pastoral herders. They owned sheep and goats, maybe sometimes cattle. They built no permanent constructions and held no permanent territory. They worshipped a polytheistic pantheon of gods of whom we know nothing except the name of one Guti, the god from whom the people were named by their neighbors. Nothing they produced has survived the test of time, and as such, zero recognizably Gutian artifacts or sites have ever been unearthed. Nothing exists of their language except for a handful of personal names, though it does not seem to be related to any other known language. Curiously, they may have had lighter skin and hair than their neighbors, though this is poorly attested and much debated. I might be being a little harsh on the Gutians here, but most of this description could stand in for the barbarians on the other side of Mesopotamia, the Amorites, and indeed the vast majority of the world, outside a few cradles of civilization, who were all just as illiterate and uncivilized. So really, it's the Mesopotamians who were better, rather than the Gutians being worse. Still... The people of the mountains had, since time immemorial, looked down at the wealth of their agricultural neighbors and coveted it. Some would likely be enticed to join this new civilization thing, after all, there was a substantial population of pastoralists in Sumer, fully integrated into the larger economy. And we know for certain that there was a degree of movement in the other direction, most famously when the pastoralist and later biblical patriarch Abram left the city of Ur sometime in the pre-Akkadian period to become Abraham, founder of Judaism." So it seems that for pastoralists, at least, civilization was a choice, and it could either be accepted or rejected to greater or lesser extent simply by moving closer or further and participating more or less with the city. But of course, the vast majority of Gutians did not respond to this desire for the wealth of their neighbors by joining those neighbors. Most of them simply came down and raided for livestock, food, women, and other forms of portable wealth whenever they thought they could get away with it. The cities of Sumer, and later the Akkadian Empire, would respond in kind raiding the mountains sometimes as a deterrent or reprisal against Gutian raids, and also sometimes in search of livestock and slaves to take for themselves. And so things looked like they would continue in this way basically forever. Then came the 4.2 kiloyear BP aridification event. The Zagros Mountains were not terribly fertile lands to begin with, and the extended drought made it less hospitable than ever. The natural response for nomadic peoples when times get bad is to move to a new place. Not one particular place, just anywhere in general that's away from the troubled area. Now, of course, the entire continent was troubled, but they didn't know that yet, so they spill out literally everywhere, overrunning Mesopotamia, Elam, and into the Indus Valley civilization on the other side of the mountains, and almost certainly they were moving in other directions that didn't have any civilization and thus didn't leave any records. And still, we run the risk of getting an anachronistic image here, like we're talking about the Mongol hordes sweeping through the plains— burning and pillaging and cackling like villains. This wasn't a campaign to conquer territory or even a time of intense raiding. And most of all, remember that the horse hadn't been domesticated yet, so these people are all just walking everywhere, even in their famous hit-and-run raids that moved too fast for the Sumerian armies to keep up with. No, the Gutians simply walked in large numbers into the plains of Mesopotamia and paused where they found themselves. They grazed sheep and raised families, and when anyone civilized passed by, they would either run away or attack them. It was more of a migration and occupation than a military invasion, though the results would have been even more disastrous for the region than a mere invasion likely would have been. The individual Gutian clans would roam the countryside like bandits. If there was food on the farm, they would take it with no thought for replanting for the next year. If the crops were not yet mature, they would graze the goats on the grain before there was even a chance to harvest it. If there were people on the roads, they would demand tribute or simply kill them outright. Anything not behind city walls was at risk of being stolen, and those behind walls began to starve as the fields that fed their cities were locked away from them and destroyed. As years passed, two sorts of cities began to emerge. Those who still had the strength to build up a local militia to keep the Gutians back spent most of the century desperately fighting for their small patch of land. Those who lacked the ability to secure their agricultural hinterlands would be attacked more directly by larger bands of Gutians who would eventually break through into the city and establish themselves as petty kings, much to the detriment of the citizens. Turnover among these petty kings was very high. A few more romantic souls see this as evidence of a semi-democratic rotating kingship system, though... I, honestly, don't see any direct evidence of this. A more plausible interpretation is extreme instability among the Gutian ruling classes, which would normally have been solved by the disputing parties each taking their section of the clan and splitting and moving somewhere else. But in the unfamiliar context of a settled city, this meant things devolving into palace coups or civil wars every two to six years. But even when cities were ruled by Gutian kings, the Gutians never took up settled life in any systematic fashion, and remained like a plague of bandits upon the land. Elam, during this time, appears to have been almost completely submerged by the barbarian flood. In the north, things seem to have been at least a little bit better, since certain Syrian and Assyrian cities are able to keep their independence for much of this period. In the heartland of Sumer, however, we only have interesting things to say about three cities for this century. Akkad was taken by Gutians and ruled for maybe 50 years by some 20 or so kings before the much diminished city was destroyed by some interclam rivalry or civil war. There ends the story of Akkad. Uruk held on to its independence for some time after the empire collapses, and while it has a period of Gutian rule, they're somehow able to put themselves into semi-independent vassalage by the middle of the next century, though this will be the subject of the next episode. Lagash, whom we saw before the rise of Akkad as the dominant power in Sumer, is never once directly conquered by the Gutians, a claim few other cities can plausibly make. They detach from the empire during the three-year civil war, and actually fare fairly well in this dark era. What trade still manages to flow does so increasingly through Lagashite ports, and though they may have been paying tribute or protection money to certain more prominent Gutian kings, they also seem to have had enough military potency to defend themselves, or even at times strike out and build small hegemonies among local cities. The rulers of this second dynasty of Lagash actually ruled from the nearby suburb of Gursu, but the region of Lagash as a whole managed to expand and contract over the century without losing control over their own heartland. Still, the age is poorly enough understood that the second dynasty can be summarized pretty quickly. A general of Akkad named Mama gains independence for the city in the chaos of the civil war. He then either ruled for a very long time, or had a series of successors that have been forgotten. Later, we have a figure named Ur-Baba, who ruled over a prosperous Lagash, and up next is the most famous figure from the age, King Gudea. Gudea was not Ur-Baba's actual son, but a particularly competent local noble who was married into the royal house. More than anything else, Gudea is remembered because he went on a massive statue-building campaign, and today there are still 26 fairly realistic statues of the man in pretty good condition for the most part, but he's also interesting for being a light of detail contrasting to the darkness on either side of his rule. His city traded extensively, and we get the first reference to the Indian region of Goa, possibly even sending a population of Sumerians all the way to South India to form a trading colony, though this may be later legend he and his priests appear to have wrestled fairly deeply with the religious changes following the upheavals, and may have deified himself and may also have changed around the traditional order of precedence for the great gods, elevating the local patron deity Ninurta to give his protective spells over the city more power. Finally, he looked back to history, to the great reformer Urukagina, and adopted a portion of his social reforms, including a citywide cancellation of debts. Gudea was followed by Er Erningursu, of whom we also have a good statue, but the fortunes of Lagash appear to have stagnated and likely declined a bit after this. We have tentatively a few more king names after Er Erningursu, possibly Ugme and Urgar, though both are wholly obscure, and then they were followed either by unknown kings or by Namhani, who gets accused of collaboration with the Gutians, and thus, when he's defeated by Utu-Hengal, it was considered a righteous move even by the citizens of Lagash, or so the very scant evidence suggests. But we'll leave the tale of rising up from the ashes of the Gutians for another time. Join us next week as we recover some ground covered back in episode 10, back before I had a good idea of what direction the show was going to go in. We will review the familiar ground of Ur Namu and King Shulgi, while adding in a bit more detail to flesh the story out better. Thank you for listening.